Uh, if you're new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. On the inside, you get some notes that go deeper into what we're talking about, as well as some questions. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More and then Events in Uversion. We'll come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Uh, This is Judges 19, verse 29. It says, And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb from limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. That's how it's going to go today. All right, let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who trust you, uh, who live our lives in ways that when we read things in the scriptures, we can take a step back and think, what are you trying to teach us from these things in the scriptures? And on the backside of it, we would love you more and understand what you do to rescue and redeem more, because you are a great and a good God who has come for the salvation of your people. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so this is the second part of our What in the World series where we are answering your questions out of the Bible that seem perplexing, like the verse I just read. Uh, Part one was where I went through and I had some questions that I thought might perplex you, so I answered those. And during that series, I said, why don't you me ask your questions and we'll come back and answer those, and that's what we're going through. And I find it interesting that a lot of the questions are about these crazy things in the Bible, not that the questions are about crazy things, but there's these crazy things, and they always seem to have this caveat of, why did God do this? And the simple answer is, God didn't do this, okay? People are nuts, and that's what you see in the Bible. I've said multiple times, the Bible is here to show us the nature of humanity and sin, and the goodness of a God who redeems and rescues us and returns us back to what we were meant to be. Uh, heads up, if you were here last week, today is going to kind of parallel that a little bit. One of the people in my GC said, could you, re- could you warn us when it's going to be PG-13? And if you thought last week was PG-13, this week is PG-13 as well. Okay, just throwing that out there in case you're like sitting with your kids and being like, ah! okay, just letting you know. I'm going to give you a little background before I even get to the question so you understand kind of where we're going today. If you ask a lot of people who grew up in churches or youth groups what salvation means, they will typically tell you something that sounds like a covenant of works. And that means we explain God in a way that says he told his creatures to keep a moral code and their life in the garden was dependent on that moral code. Failure was death and we are a people who failed. That code is then repeated in the Old Testament law, but we keep messing up. And so humans were headed to hell and not to heaven, but then Jesus came. And Jesus keeps this moral code perfectly and with his death he paid for the penalty for our sins. But that works contract is still kind of in effect. Jesus has fulfilled what was required. By believing in him, we get his achievements, and we get to go to heaven and be with God forever. Now, what's wrong with that? Nothing, okay? There's nothing wrong with that. That is all true, but it's not the whole story, okay? It is not the whole story. Jesus took our punishment. Jesus took our failures. He took uh, all of those things where we did not measure up, and what he does is he gives us his righteousness as a gift. The Bible, though, doesn't offer as a works contract. What the Bible really offers us in the end is this covenant of vocation, 
we return to the people that we were meant to be. Uh, a vocation, in your mind, you might hear, oh, it sounds like a job, sounds horrible. But a covenant, a vocation meant that we were meant to be God's image bearers in the world. That we were meant to represent who he was. We were meant to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. Creation was meant to be a temple and God's people were meant to be like priests in that temple, functioning as image bearers of God. And so creation was meant to flourish under the direction of God through his image bearers. And so human beings are called to more than just moral standards. We're supposed to celebrate, worship, and procreate, and take responsibility for the vividness of the creation around us. And the plight of humanity is not just that we have broken God's moral law, insulting our creator, though that is true. It's that we've also turned created order upside down. And we start to worship created things rather than the creator. We worship animals and nature and other people. And this results in what the Bible calls idolatry, which results in slavery and eventually death. We have essentially turned our world into a hell. And this is why people say, I want to escape and go to a heaven that human beings haven't messed up yet. It hasn't been touched or screwed up by us. And if you would understand how Hebrews saw the scriptures in life, you would understand when the Bible talks about a new heavens and a new earth, it doesn't mean that this one goes away. For them, that's the idea of renewal, that God has called his creation good, and God is going to come and redeem and renew his creation just like he does for us. Everything is renewed because God makes it new again. God promises redemption in Jesus, and that redemption extends to creation and us as image bearers. And what the Bible shows is we continually cease being these image bearers. We keep messing up who God calls us to be in the world. It's why when you read crazy accounts in the Bible of people doing crazy things, we say, what in the world? That is not right. You know why we say that? Because it's not right. That, that's exactly it. It is just not right. Right. Doing what we deem right in our own eyes means we cease to be image bearers. And what you will see in the book of Judges is this constant refrain that keeps coming back. And it goes like this, Judges 21, 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When we keep doing things that are right just in our own eyes, it makes things worse and worse and worse. What you will see today, you see people stop being image bearers of God and begin to image themselves. So here's the what in the world question for today. In Judges chapters 19 to 21, there is a Levite, and he throws his concubine to a group of rapists. He then dismembers her body and sends the pieces to all of Israel and incites a war. Why is this in the Bible? How does it represent God and his grace? Now, first off, You read the book of Judges. I am totally impressed, okay? (laughs) Because not a lot of people read the the book of Judges. Uh, It's one of those books we don't read all that often. I have even toyed with the idea of teaching through the book of Judges, but it'll probably take us a year to get through, so I keep kind of pushing it off. I talked to uh, John G. about it between services, and he goes, you should totally do that. And I said, that's because you're a geek, okay? You would totally... (laughs) enjoy that. Uh, When you think about the book of Judges, there's stories almost everybody knows, like Samson and his strength, or Gideon and the fleece, but that's about it. Judges is a book that we don't read all that often, but if you were going to find in the craziest stories in the Bible, almost all of them would come out of the book of Judges. Like, there's this little woman named Jael, and she drives a tent peg through a guy's head and sticks him to the ground. There is this guy named Jephthah. He's a mighty warrior, wins a battle for Israel, you know, begins to set them free, and then he might have sacrificed his daughter in a rash vow. 
There's this guy named Jaren, and his story takes one verse, and it tells you he had 30 sons who rode 30 donkeys and ruled 30 towns. It seems like there's more to the story than just that. Like, what's, what's going on there? But the story we get to today is one of the strangest ones, and I get why it's the what in the world question. So open your Bibles to Judges 19. We're going to look at this. I'm going to answer the what in the world question as best as I can. I'm going to skip around a lot and not go verse by verse because I couldn't go through all the verses and actually get through it all. So I'm going to do like what the Princess Bride says, let me sum up. That's what I'm going to do. Okay? Uh, Judges 19, starting in verse 1. It starts like this. And in those days when there is no king in Israel. So that refrain is there to remind you how not to be an image bearer of God. This story is going to show you that. That's why it tells you that. It says, A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. Now, let me see if anybody of you can answer this. Uh, what were Levites supposed to be? Priests, exactly. Israel's priests. They're supposed to serve in the temple. Now, the whole nation was supposed to be a nation and kingdom of priests, but the Levites were those whose inheritance in the land was meant to be serving in the temple. So what is this guy doing? Not his job. Okay, He's not doing his job. And this is where we get into a lot of problems with men today. They're never taught to work because their parents give them everything. Uh, I, was, I was reading this conversation on Facebook this week where someone was like, like oh, I'm glad I had kids because you know, my, I, when I get old, my kids can take care of me. And, and their kid kind of does a lot of stuff. But I was thinking for a lot of people, man, not if you don't teach your kids how to work. They're not going to know how to take care of you. If, you. if you showed your kid a picture of a shovel, would he know what it was? And then would he know what to do with it? I mean, I think kids need jobs they hate. Like, I know, I'm, I'm going to be the oddball here, but this whole you know, minimum wage, $15 an hour, I am like, no, we need to pay these high school kids 5 bucks an hour to flip fries and burgers and stuff, because they need jobs they hate, where they work hard and like, man, this is horrible. That's the curse. That's the fall. That's what sin does. $5 an hour. Whew. Okay. I think, I think every boy growing up needs a paper route where you gotta fold those papers every day and take them out and deliver those things and you make no money whatsoever and everybody on your route is mad at you. Okay. It's my soapbox. Alright. So Judges starts this story by telling you that this guy is not a good guy. What does he do? He rides his donkey around. And there's another word for that in the Old Testament that I can't use in church. But he rides his donkey around. He finds a girl. He is repeatedly happy to have sex with her, but won't marry her. Won't make her his wife. Sounds like a lot of guys today. A concubine in this culture is something like a wife, but not really. It's something like a slave, but not quite. It's something like a mistress, but not quite. And so Judges is showing this type of behavior was accepted by society, but God is saying, I am not okay with it. And no matter what people say, no matter what people say is right in your own eyes, doesn't make it right. Verse 2, and his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Now here the word unfaithful, it can actually mean that she became angry with. And the unfaithfulness in this how this is written could be in the eyes of the culture that she left this guy to go back home to be with her daddy. It doesn't necessarily mean she was sleeping with somebody else. He could have been a total jerk. He could have been out looking for other concubines to have in his life. 
And, and so she was like, you know what? I am tired of this. I got to get out of here. I'm not going to be here anymore. Ladies, if you got some guy in your life who keeps saying, oh, I'm going to marry you someday, kick him to the curb. Make that dude man up. Unless he's a jerk. Then just kick him to the curb and then leave him at the curb. That's a good place for him to be. So the girl goes home, takes this guy four months to figure things out and get his stuff together. I think it's because all the other women he was chasing figured him out. It's like, I don't want anything to do with you. So he says, I'll just go back to her. And he tries to go back to her. Josephus, who is the first century Jewish historian, says that almost all rabbis agreed that this guy is a deplorable man. Verse 3, then her husband, and it says this because technically in the society, she is now connected to him. He can go around and not have to stay with her, but she can't go to anybody else because she is her husband, but he is her concubine. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. In Hebrew, this means speak to her heart, say things in a kindly and affectionate manner. He's schmoozing her to get her to come back. Oh, I'm sorry, baby. I'll treat you better. I won't punch you anymore. I'll stop sleeping around. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys, and she brought him into her father's house. When the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Now, her dad is also not the greatest guy in the world because her dad thinks that this guy coming back into her daughter's life is a good thing. And it's not necessarily a good thing. This dad is one of those guys who wants everybody to get along. Let's whatever sinful thing that happens and pops up, just be like, oh, I'm okay with that. And the text is written in a way that the, almost the father is more excited to see this guy than the girl is. It's like, hey, Whitney, but Bobby Brown came back. <laughs> or whatever girl Gary Busey's dating this week. Oh, he punched you again, but it's Gary Busey. It's okay. Hey, Rihanna, Chris Brown came back. I mean, no? Nothing? <sighs> the guy convinces this concubine, <laughs> concubine to come back with him, and the father of the girl, he is overjoyed. Over the course of the week, he will feed him and give him drink and lodging. It's this guy wants this guy to like him more than he cares, I said, about the welfare of his daughter. In the end, it will lead to his daughter's death. It will say twice that the two of them, the dad and this boyfriend, ate and drank together, and the girl was nowhere mentioned, like she had, she had no say in any of this. So after a few verses of the boyfriend getting ready to leave, the father's saying, oh, no, no, stay, stay, stay. Eventually, he saddles the donkeys, and they get up to leave. It's a little afternoon. The Hebrews would call this the pitching of the day, and they start to head out. They end up towards evening outside of Jerusalem, and one of the servants says, hey, there's Jerusalem. Let's go stay there. It's getting dark. And the Levite says, oh, no, 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 because at that time, Israel or Jerusalem is in the hands of foreigners. And he says, I don't want to go there. There's horrible foreigners there. So the Levite is also a racist, too. So just, just keeps dropping down, just keeps dropping down. So instead, they travel up to a place called Gibeah. Gibeah is in the area of the tribe of Benjamin. It's five, hour, uh, five miles northeast of Jerusalem. While there, they can't find a place to stay either, so they go to the town square. Judges 19, verse 15. And they turned aside from there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Now, you don't see this because you're Americans, but this is a horrible faux pas in the culture of the day. God's people were called to be those who invited those into their homes to show them hospitality for the purpose that people would know who God is. Bring them in. Show them who I am. Love them, the people in your land. And they don't 
do that. It's showing you how far they had fallen from being the image bearers of God that God called them to be. This is a bad thing that's taking place. So what happens is this other guy shows up and he'll invite them into their home. Uh, verse 16, And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of that place were Benjamites. So here comes a guy, not from the town, not from the town. Uh, and he sees a Levite in the square, invites him into his house. And this is important because the Levite didn't want to stay in Jerusalem because there were foreigners there. But here this guy is called a sojourner, which means he is a foreigner. He's outside the tribe of Benjamin, and this guy invites him into his house. Again, it's to show you how far the tribes had fallen. They're actually almost at war with one another. The aim here is to contrast what God called them to and then how they were actually living. So they go to this man's house, they eat and drink, they become merry, hospitality has been found, and now you see strong parallels between what we talked about last week and this week. Verse 22, As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And that is a reference to sex. At this time, this is probably they want to come in and say, we're the tribe of Benjamin, we will dominate everybody else and show you who's really in control. But the, and the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. So, again, like last week, what's their answer to this? Verse 24, he says, Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out. Now, violate them and do to them what seems good to you, but against this man do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him, so the man seized his concubine, and that's the boyfriend, not the guy who has the house, and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night long until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Are you disgusted and angry? You should be. You should be. And this isn't even the half of it. This is where the parallels, and I'll talk about this in just a moment, but you have these parallels between Sodom and Gomorrah and this thing taking place in Israel. The Israelites looked at what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, and they said, oh, that was horrible, that's terrible, that people would ever do that. And here they have their own little Sodom within the boundaries of Israel done by the quote-unquote people of God. But you have so many things wrong with this. you got that, you got the proposal of the old man, the unfeeling carelessness of the Levite. It shows you a state of morality that's very hard to believe. Image bearers were meant to protect. These guys should have protected the women in the house, even at the expense of their own lives. There are so many things wrong in this, it's hard to point them all out. I think it's enough to say that what you see here is the result of continual, purposeful running away from God headlong into sin. This is what happens in our lives without God. We don't get better, we get worse and worse and worse, and yet we think it's okay. This is not something that God condones. It's something the writers of Scripture want you to wake up about. It's like I said last week, when you read this, what does God want you to see? He wants to be like, hey, wake up, wake up. The further you run from me, the worse it gets. And the more that you think it's okay, you need to wake up. When we cease to be image bearers of God and try to image ourselves, we destroy what we were meant to be and destroy the creation around us. And the story isn't over. Are you ready? 
All right, verse 27. And her master rose up early, rose up in the morning, so once he's sure it's safe for him, and he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way. Behold, there was this concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. So after everyone was done with her, she crawls back to the house. She almost makes it, and she actually dies here with her hands on the threshold. Verse 28. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. Gentlemen, if that disgusts you, do not be this guy. Do not be this guy. But there was no answer because she was dead. But he, then he put her on his donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his house. And when he entered his house, he took a knife. Taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. See, what, I'll talk about this in a minute too, but what you see here is this guy doesn't see anything wrong with what he did. He just sees something wrong with what the other people in that city did. So he divides her up. He's a Levite, so he knows how to do that, and he sends her out to the 12 tribes of Israel. And the story isn't over. As a result of sending these pieces to Israel, they are horrified. The text implies they're horrified with what the Levite did as well as what happened in Gibeah. So Israel raises an army of 400,000 people. That's a big army even today. 400,000 these men gather, and they're going to go destroy the tribe of Benjamin for allowing this. So it's within their borders. So they show up outside the tribe of Benjamin, and they say, bring us these men for justice. You know what the tribe of Benjamin does? They say, nope. And they raise an army of their own, and they fight to protect these guys. That's what they do. And so this whole war takes place. The entire tribe of Benjamin is destroyed except for 600 guys who run into the hills to try and be safe. But in order to make sure that tribe never survives, Israel makes this vow before God and they say, none of our daughters will be given to the tribe of Benjamin as wives so that they go away. And that's not the end of the story. What happens after this is Israel starts to feel guilty over what they did. They almost killed the entire tribe of Benjamin. There's supposed to be 12 tribes of Israel. Oh no, what do we do? So they make peace with Benjamin, but they also made this vow before God. We will not give our daughters to these people. So what they do instead is they throw a party. And they invite all these women to it, and all the girls show up, and they say, we can't give you wives, but if you go in and kidnap them, what can we do about that? And so the 600 guys from Benjamin go in, they steal wives, they haul them off, kidnap them, and make them their wives that way. And that's the end of the story. Right? Right? You, all through this, the whole thing kind of culminates in this refrain again, Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Israel didn't have a king, so who was supposed to be king? God was supposed to be king. So it's telling you they weren't following him. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's not even until Judges chapter 20, verse 18, that anybody stops to ask God what they should do in any of this. They don't really want to know what God says to do. What they ask God is, who should attack first? That's the question. In the book of Judges, every story starts with that formula. In those days, Israel had no king. Then the story is told, and then it rounds it out with, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We call this spiritual blindness. We think everyone else around us has the problem, and we refuse to look at our own lives to see what's wrong with us. Oh, look at those horrible Benjamites. Look at that horrible Levite. Look at that horrible concubine. We want to judge everything around us without ever taking inventory of ourselves. Again, the Levite, he looks and he thinks, oh, those horrible people in in that city, look what they did to my concubine. Not even realize he threw her out the door. What is up with that? 
Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What are we supposed to learn from this story? How could God have put that in the scriptures? Because that's the what in the world question. He puts it there, again, to wake us up, because we are all the same way. We are like the man with the concubine. We see things around us as ours. We do not steward or protect or nurture the things God has placed in our care. And when it comes to others around us, we look at them as having to give to us and serve us first rather than serving them. We are also like the concubine. We give ourselves to people and things way too easily. I got, a, I got an example of this a little bit. Uh, last year when Carrie Fisher died, all these people kept posting, May the force be with you. May the force be with you. The force isn't real. George Lucas made it up. You look at poor Carrie Fisher's life. I mean, she spirals down in this craziness of drugs in her life. Did anybody ever stop and not say, the force is with you, and say, Jesus loves you. There is purpose and meaning to your life. You don't have to find it in these drugs. Let me help you. How can we show you the truth? Rather than, oh, you're Carrie Fisher, you're Princess Leia. Way to go. We must be a people who speak the truth. And this is the hardest one of all, guys. We are also just like the Benjamites. We are just like them. When we want something in America and somebody doesn't give it to us, we just go crazy. We just go crazy. We think people are trying to take away our rights when somebody says no. We raise our kids this way too. Why is my kid freaking out when I said no? Because we have a sin nature. That's why we think everything is meant to be ours. This is why we train one another how to live and be image bearers of God. But we have not become image bearers of God. We've become image bearers of one another. Judges starts off the book and they ask God, you know, what's right in your eyes? And they don't listen to any of it. And they go run off or for the most part leave God out of the picture. When you read this part of the scripture, you should be horrified at what it says. But I think in so many ways, our culture is the same. Thomas Swope once wrote this. He said, In the ridiculous pursuit of total freedom, we have kicked our holy and precious God out of our country. I think that's true. What we have to understand is that even though we are, and Israel was, incensed at the actions of what took place to the Levites' concubine, it was not a sudden, random failure that brought it about. It was a continual, purposeful descent from righteousness, from being image bearers of God, to this unbelievable cruelty and immorality. In Reformed doctrine, we call this total depravity, that the depths of unrighteousness by humanity are unplumbed. There are always worse things we can go to. Man is not good by nature. We tend towards evil. The problem with setting our standards on our own apart from God is we always tend to go to the middle of the road. Hey, if I'm middle of the road, everybody will like me. I'll just, I'll just be right there. But the middle tends to always sink. And when it sinks, so do the standards. And at some point, something that's not spoken of becomes something that's tolerated. And so that tolerated thing becomes accepted. And that accepted thing then becomes normal. And then that accepted thing then becomes demanded, then taken by force. And I could point to you a dozen different things in our world today that this is true of. Now, as I said, last week we talked about Lot and his life. And in the middle of that story was that downfall of Sodom and Gomorrah. Again, the Israelites were horrified at that story that anybody could do that to someone else. The sin of Sodom, the destruction of the city, it actually directly parallels Noah's flood. The same word for destruction is used. And so Moses is trying to connect these stories together. It relates to the evil of the world at the time of the flood. Then you get to Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's like, well, how could this thing happen? Why would anybody do something so horrific? And then in Judges 19, they do the exact same thing. 
they have a Sodom in their own country with the people of God. What happened in Genesis 19 at the flood of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah and how they treated strangers should horrify us. It should horrify us. Guys, today I look at the refugee crisis and I don't know what the answer is. Okay, I don't. So don't think I have all the answers to it. But I will tell you this. It is not being a people who don't offer any hospitality to anybody. It is not shutting the door in people's faces when we are called to be a people who show them the goodness and the greatness of our God. We must preach God. I'm not saying there shouldn't be like any things that you interview them and things like But we need to be better than we are of just shutting a door. It needs to be something where we as people step in and say, this is the grace and the goodness of God. And I'm not just talking about that. There's all kinds of other things in our lives we should be doing that as well. We must own the fact that when we cease to be image bearers of God, we can easily go the same direction where evil seems normal and following God just seems ridiculous. So what do we do? What do we do? Do we amass an army of 400,000 people and go and fight people that we see in sin? No, that's it. If I got another answer, I'd be like, wow, okay. So, yeah, no! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Tough crowd today. Yeah, let's kill them all! Okay, all right. No. We become what God originally created us to be as a people. We become His image bearers in the world. And we do that by understanding His redemption of us. Do you know one of the most beloved people in the New Testament church, most encouraging, was this guy named Barnabas? Barnabas was, Barnabas was a Levite, a Levite, who started out as someone who lost his way. Uh, Acts 4, 36 and 47 says, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, and Levites weren't supposed to own land, but, but he does, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. At some point, somebody in Barnabas' family or Barnabas himself thought that money and land ownership was more important than following God. But upon following Jesus... He returns to what he was meant to be. He's changed. He's brought in. He is redeemed. He's renewed. He's accepted. That's grace. When we think about the Benjamites and what they did in trying to protect these rapists, I think like today we look at certain countries like uh, Syria or Pakistan, like all those, all those horrible, evil people that are over there. That's how I think a lot of people in Israel felt about the Benjamites. All of them must be evil. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. There is a very famous Benjamite in the New Testament. And his name is Paul. His name is Paul. He writes most of the New Testament books, and he lays out the case so strongly for grace that most people who argue for the point of grace take Paul's arguments. And I think it's because Paul understood grace, that his tribe is still there because of the grace of God. Now, Paul speaks of us being remade and renewed into who he calls us to be. So Ephesians 4, we're going to start in verse 17 and go through verse 24. It says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. This is another way of saying we think we know better than God how to live our lives. And Paul writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, he is writing to Gentiles. Okay? Verse 19, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed to practice every kind of impurity. Again, sounds like the Benjamites. But that is not the way you learned in Christ, assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the understanding of redemption, of renewed life, the renewed self. 
being image bearers of God again. God doesn't get rid of us as a people. What God does is He makes us new again. He redeems, He restores. This is what God does for His people over and over and over. We always hear this thing about the Jews. Oh, they were the chosen people. Do you know why they were chosen? Not because God loved them more than anybody else. He chose them to serve others, to bless others, to love others, so people could see who God was, and in return, those other people would be redeemed themselves because they would trust who God was. When we call ourselves Christians, that we're saved, it doesn't mean that we're better than anybody else. It means that we have been adopted into this family. You know what we get to have? A vocation. We get to be image bearers of God. And we get to go and love and serve and show the world who God is by how we live. That people can be redeemed themselves. The world will get to see what God's people were meant to live like. That man would return to being image bearers. That is who we are all called to be. And it is the gospel that teaches us all of this. Because it's God's grace and love given to us. Guys, I understand. We read crazy stories in the Bible like this, right? We're like, why is that there? What's it there for? It's to remind us what happens when we cease being image bearers of God. When we start running down this path where we think, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. When we say that, we go off the cliff so fast. But even in that, God doesn't leave us there. He comes and calls us home and He wants to rescue us and redeem us and bring us back in again because our God is simply that good. All these stories you see, Judges is a book to remind you over and over and over what happens when people cease being image bearers. But God calls us back in to be an image bearer. This is, this is what communion reminds us of. That's why you take that cracker, you break it like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, reminds us of, of his blood that was shed for you and me, because that washes away our sin. All that stands between us and others taken care of at the moment of the cross. Jesus raises to new life, brings us to new life. And we don't just get our sins forgiven. It's not just about the works. It's that we get to, again, become those image bearers of God and live in true relationship with Him. It's the beauty of what God does in restoration and redemption. So the band's going to come up. And as they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, if you're in a place today where you just subtly start to drift away from being an image bearer, where you don't realize that you're even doing it or moving in those directions. They would love to pray for you. They would love to pray for you because so often it happens. Guys, sometimes I know it's so easy to sit down and binge watch seven to ten hours of a TV show and not even think about Jesus or reading your Bible or anything in the midst of it because we drift so easily, so easily. And if you feel like you've drifted, you want someone to pray with you, they'd love to pray with you about that. If you have no idea what it means to be an image bearer of God, they'd love to pray with you about that. They'd love to help you understand what true redemption and true life really means because the good news of Jesus, that he comes to restore us to make all things new. And that includes us and the creation around us. And there's offering boxes in the side wall in the back and we give because God gave so much to us giving this part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's meant to be a response to what God is doing in our hearts and in our lives. There's some food in the back. I saw a ton of cookies, so someone must love you. And they're being an image bearer of God. 
And so grab some to eat, meet some other people. Uh, and again, we do that so that you guys would start to connect with one another. And hopefully this week you will sit down with some people you trust and ask a few questions. I think a good question to ask somebody else is, where do you tend to drift? Where do you tend to drift? You know, what things in your life do you just start to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to fall. And eventually you're just kind of over here and it's like, oh, man, I'm not being an image bearer. We need to go back. Because I think if we could help each other identify those things, we could help each other to remember and see when we're walking in those places and ways. To return to being what God calls us to be. As God renews us, we are meant to go out and show the entire world the goodness of who he is. So let's become his image bearers in this world. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would teach us in those things in our life that we do not even realize because we're so busy seeing the messed up mess in everybody else around us that you would start to show us the own places in our lives where we have drifted from you. The places where we are starting to image ourselves and not image you. Father, we thank you for your great grace that is constantly bringing us back again. That is constantly reminding us of who you are. And that your good news is good news for everybody. So teach us to live as those image bearers. To see the places and the ways and the walks that you're calling us into. And we would step into those. Not because it makes us makes you love us more, but it's simply because we want to image our great and good God who has rescued and saved us. So teach us to understand the reality and the depth of your grace, of your call, of our vocation. And teach us to begin to live that out in ways that are real and true and viable in the world around us. That we wouldn't end up someday looking at something that's so heinous in the world and say, how dare they? And the next week we end up doing the exact same thing. I ask that you would pull the blinders off of our eyes so we would see our own spiritual blindness and that we would understand how you renew us day by day by day. That you would deliver us from ourselves and that you would give us the courage to live as your image bearers in this world and we ask this in your son's good name Amen